Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, the show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, David Isle, and my guest today is Chris Blattman. Chris holds a PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley and is now the Romilly E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago in Harris Public Policy and the Pearson Institute. He is also the author of the just-published book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Path to Peace. It's available wherever you buy books. Chris, welcome. Thank you. So first question, got a lot of listeners who are undergraduate young professionals looking out at uh, the career paths that are possible for them. And you have an interesting one. So how did you become an economist that studies conflict? Yeah, well, I mean, there's the two part. One's in the book. The thing that's not in the book is that I started as an accountant, which was maybe not the best suited career for me. I studied business in undergrad and I, and my secret was to keep quitting jobs until I found one that I liked. So it's sort of my version of the Silicon Valley, you know, fail often or fail fast, which is to tell people that if they're not happy with what they're doing, they should quit a lot. And I did. And I kept quitting until I ended up doing research. Uh, I was a first year PhD student in Kenya. I'm sorry. Well, I was in Berkeley, as you said, but I went to Kenya for a summer because I thought, well, I don't know if I, I need to try on a development policy career for size. So I'd gotten a job for the summer with the World Bank running firm surveys in Nairobi because I was interested in industrialization, development, and, and growth, like so many of us are. And uh, two con men stole my laptop, and I ended up in an internet cafe. And because in those days, emails took so long to load, I purposely sat next to an attractive young woman because you know, you usually just chat up with the person next to you in between the 10 minutes it takes your email to load. And, and we started chatting and she was a humanitarian worker and a psychology PhD who was working in Northern Uganda, which was this conflict nearby, which I knew a little bit about, which I guess distinguished me, made up for the fact that I was working with the World Bank, which was not really a, a plus. Mm-hmm. And long story short, I followed her to Northern Uganda the following year and found myself finding all the other things I'd researched before not not as important anymore. And so it changed my career. And also we're married 15 years this year. We have two kids. So that was a good day. <laughs> well, congratulations on all of that. And I, I mean, Berkeley is obviously a very strong department in many fields. Were your professors kind of quizzical about your decisions <laughs> to, to change your focus or were they excited about it? Well, yeah, I mean, Berkeley does indulge its PhD students more than most places to do unusual things. This probably pushed it a little too far for them at the time. And I was actually, I'd gone there to be an economic historian, and I had sort of an economic history project in mind that was, I'd be in the library a lot. And and I had a proposal defense committee in my third year that was set up for that. It was people like Barry Eichengreen and, and Cheng Taishe and Gerard Roland and some other people your listeners might be familiar with. And so when I, a month before my proposal defense, when I came in and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to this active war zone and <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to find this people who used to be members of this insurgent group and I'm going to run a systematic like representative survey of them. And they just sort of, anyways, <laughs> I showed up at the meeting and they were like, well, you know, we thought this idea was such a bad idea and so crazy. <laughs> That we went back and we read your old dissertation proposal and we're uh-huh. prepared to talk about that today. And because you shouldn't go. And <laughs> so I sort of stunned. 
And Ted Miguel, who's also still at Berkeley, and to his credit, was sort of after that, when I was sort of despondent, said, you know what, why don't you just go for a couple months and try it out and see what happens? And, and in their defense, I mean, Gerard Roland came back to me after I graduated. And he said, like, first, you know, great, you pulled it off. Like, congratulations, we were wrong. And by the way, if I'd known this was about love, I would have told you to go. <laughs> and so all these years later, you're not only have a successful academic career, but have also written this book. So how did you uh, come to this book project? Well, you know, I mean, part of the book is about my own research and experiences, but not much in some sense. It's, it's because I, you know, I, I spent all these years, you know, you try to understand why this violence is happening and why people are violent. And that's kind of what I started to do at the micro level. And, you know, I started studying villages in conflict. I started studying small groups in conflict. I started studying individuals who are violent and, and ways to make that stop. And I found that all of the conflict theory we developed for why nations go to war and, and why, you know, large groups go to war were really relevant. Like that was irrelevant. But theoretically, that, that's what I needed to understand. That really helped me clarify what was happening at a more micro level with small groups and individuals. And, and likewise, I think small groups and individuals would help you test and clarify a lot of the things that were going on at that more macro level. But then I would talk to people in the field and I would talk to policymakers. And, and even to this day, like I would talk to just very knowledgeable national security professionals and people had just no idea about this apparatus of ideas and theories and, and evidence that political science and sociology and economics and all these fields had brought. And so I kept waiting for someone to write this book because it could have been written 20 years ago in some ways, and it should have been written every year since, and, and nobody did. And so I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to write this. So the niche you're feeling is, niche sounds like it's uh, you know small and important, definitely don't mean to imply yeah. that. But um, you know, as you say, there are all these books, many books about you know, large-scale wars and many books about individual-level conflict, but you've got, your focus is kind of in the middle, right? Yeah. And I'm not trying to say, here's my theory of conflict, the other books are wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to write the synthetic book that says, here's what we've learned as a, not just as a, as a field, but as many fields and here's how it all fits together. And so I think someone who's like a political scientist and maybe more of a game theorist will look at it and sort of recognize a lot and then say, what's that stuff over there? And then someone who's a psychologist or behavioral scientist will see a lot of things that they recognize and they'll look at the more strategic stuff and they'll say, what's that over there? And then both those groups, I think, economics and, and, and other fields have brought other, other, other sort of ideas. And, and so it's sort of to try to like make everyone talk to one another as well and make all that talk to a general audience. So that was the, you know, the, the modest goal. It's certainly quite interdisciplinary. And I think uh, an economist coming to the book who's used to reading, you know, modern economics papers might feel just nervous about the lack of, you know, big data or, you know, clean natural experiments. Like those are the yeah. things that are, you know, we see now in, in econ journals. But of course, you know, some inquiries just don't lend themselves to that, to that kind of evidence. It's just not available. So what have you learned working with this kind of evidence? And how would you kind of try to calm the nerves of an economist who uh, feels just like a fish out of water with this kind of evidentiary environment? Yeah, I mean... So I would say two or three things. The first thing is I hope they stay nervous because maybe the biggest failure of our field, and this is not just in economics, but just this empirical, is that we have not taken, we've not, the theory is there. And the fact that we have not been trying to run 
studies that actually test theories of conflict. We run lots of conflict studies and they're totally divorced from conflict theory. I mean, a little bit exaggerated, but people kind of make up nonsense theories. And I mean myself too, in some of my papers, in order to sort of justify some empirical exercise that is just totally ignores the actual very like powerful theory that we have. And so, so I, I mean, and so, so that brings me like the second thing, which I think a lot of academics are comfortable is we should actually take theory seriously. And when there isn't good evidence, then theory is can be a really important guide. And, and so what I do is I say, well, there is some evidence out there. I try to bring it to bear when I can. That tends to confirm the way we think about conflict. But then otherwise, we're going to have to, you know what, we're going to have to read about the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> and we're going to have to read about the First World War. And we're going to have to go over the 12 different arguments that historians make. And we're going to talk about gang conflicts in Chicago. And we're going to talk about ethnic violence in Liberian villages. And we're going to see the same thing over and over and over and over again. So it's it's like almost like a preponderance of qualitative evidence that's consistent with our theoretical intu- intuitions. And that makes me that makes me feel pretty good about it. But yeah, I mean, number one task is to then challenge that with the tools of deductive science and empirics that we have. So you, the model that you use as kind of the baseline to you know explain to readers what's going on is a hopeful and optimistic one. Like you've uh, you've got a a task at the outset of I think countering the narrative that you know humans are just innately violent, prone to conflict. That there are just all these fissures around the world between groups, and you know the slightest provocation can just uh, lead to this conflagration of violence and horribleness. But at the start, you say kind of like, well. You know, yes, there is a lot of conflict in the world, but at any given point, you know, most people are pretty peaceful. Even groups that don't like each other can figure out a way to get along. And in some ways, it's kind of just like a relative to what baseline should we be talking? You know, is is should we be thinking that the baseline level of war is really zero? So any amount of war should be shocking to us? Or should we, you know, adopt your view of it, which is like, actually, the uh, salient thing here, the notable thing, is that the most common outcome is peace, and you know we should think of war as a state of exception. Yeah, I mean, well, there. This is where I, we can go to the data. I mean, there's a really famous paper in political science by Jim Fearon and David Layton, 20, 30 years ago. That they went and they looked at all the competing ethnic groups. I would say that are proximate to one another in Sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe, and they said, okay, this is how many pairs there are. And then let's see in a given year how many are actually using violence. And it was like one in a thousand or something like that. So, and you can do the same exercise at the international level, and you can do the same exercise for political factions and countries. And so, and then you just get this basic observation that the conflict is a lot more prevalent than we would like, but this is not how most competing pairs operate. And then you get this theory. I mean, one of the things the book's delivering is this theoretical intuition that comes to us from Lots of political scientists and economists, and like Ronald Coase, saying, guess what? We have incentives to make a deal. And it's a very simple logic, this, this idea that fighting is really costly. And as people like Bon Clausewitz have told us, uh, this famous military general, fighting war is just politics by other means. So you can choose to attain you, what you want and bargain with your enemy, either with, with or without violence. And... Violence is inefficient. There's a better way to do this. And you can usually, in expectation, get the thing you want by some other means that's less costly. And this is the way we approach the analysis of legal battles and and labor strikes and also 
intergroup conflict. And so, so I think that, and that's like the, so I think it's a useful starting point, not to say that there's, it's never optimal, just to say that, well, let's recognize that the reason this doesn't happen, the reason we see these data points like Fear and Enlighten give us is because of this basic insight we have, which is this conflict's inefficient. And the fact that the general public and even our leaders and even very, very thoughtful national security professionals have never heard that before is kind of shocking. And that, that's, that was that like going back to why I wrote the book. That's the thing that had to be fixed. Yeah. I mean, I think, so when I was grad school introduced to bargaining models, which I think is, you know, similar to, to your model of conflict. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the kind of salient thing to explain was that the model predicted instant agreement. And instead we often observe at least some, you know, costly negotiation before an agreement is finally reached, which you know, is different from saying, you know, often negotiation breaks down entirely and the whole pie gets squandered. But taken literally, the model might seem to fail really frequently because, you know, often it takes a little, at least a little bit of posturing and stuff, which does end up being costly before an agreement is reached. And should we think of that as, you know, just the model is missing some parts that allow us to explain that bargaining or should we just think of it as like, yeah, you know, that's, this is another case where, you know, the model breaks down sometimes, but, you know, as a general stylized fact, what's important is that most groups reach an agreement eventually, even if it takes them, you know, a little bit of costly negotiation to get there. Yeah. I mean, we can, and people have fleshed this out and, and, and given some intuitions and then brought data to it. You know, that wasn't the direct, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to remind people, even our colleagues who know, the game theory inside out, like uh, like maybe the core logic that was really empirically important for understanding the world and the fighting. So I dwell less on that. I think that's exactly right. And then the rest of that first half of the book, you start off with, you know, here's why we shouldn't expect conflict that much, violent conflict. And then the rest of the first half is devoted to explaining ways that that logic breaks down, which, you know, there is violent conflict in the world. So, you know, you have to have a story for that. And that's what the first half of the book is devoted to. So what, what are those? And those are the roots of war from the, from the subtitle of the book. So what are the, the roots of war, the main categories of, of breakdown? Sure. I'll run through them quickly. I mean, they'll be familiar to some of your audience, maybe not others. So, I mean, there are two complex ones that if you study economics, you will learn in class and that most people aren't aware of these. These are, there's this famous thing called rationalist warfare. And it's the role that uncertainty plays and especially private information plays both in conflict, but also what you just discussed, which is the struggle to sort of even get to a bargain, which is each side, it's not clear how strong the result the other side is. And, and so you can, and they have to signal and those signals aren't always credible. It's not possible to send credible signals. And, and in particular, you're worried they might be bluffing to get an advantage. And therefore it can be sometimes optimal to attack because you don't know how strong they are. And that's in some ways the best strategy and the best way to find out. And I, I walk through that logic and I walk through the also game theoretic logic of commitment problems, which a great classic example is that one side is rising in power and you have an opportunity to avert that now by paying some cost, this cost of war. And you may be tempted to do that if in future they cannot commit to not use their newfound advantage to take advantage of the situation. This is where the Peloponnesian could. War comes in. Yeah, in the Peloponnesian War, World War, virtually, you know, there's an argument that some political scientists make that every long war probably has a commitment problem at its heart, either how it started or how it's hard to end. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so, you know, bringing that logic to general audiences is, is terrific, but 
The fact is, is there's other causes of war that those aren't actually particularly useful for that then we actually almost never talk about or think very systematically. So those are just two of the five logics. The argument of the book is to say like, we're so costly. Anything that brings us to war has to be an equally powerful incentive to yank you out of, of this powerful incentive you have to sort of find some other way. And, you know, I'll tell a story. Like when I was in Northern Uganda as a grad student, you know, some guy, uh, a guy who worked for the U S government in the embassy who had been there for many years, I think he might've been, CIA, I'm not entirely sure, but he was in charge of sort of looking at the war and going, figuring out what was going on and assigning a lot of the U.S. money and, and attention there. And he was like, well, tell me what you, tell me what you know, like you, you've studied this stuff and what do we know? And I started spouting off this stuff that we get from rationalist warfare. And as I'm saying it out loud, I realized, hey, I don't really understand how to apply this. B, it sounds nonsensical because it makes absolutely no sense in the context of this war and then he's looking at me as i'm talking thinking who is this clown like what is he talking about i couldn't imagine a more irrelevant set of nonsense for actually understanding this conflict in front of us is sort of what's going through both of our minds and that was partly because i didn't know how to apply it well which is something i'm trying to fix with this book but it's partly because some not a lot of conflicts are not explained by those two factors those are present but they're not particularly important in some sense, the, the book's then saying, well, actually, there's some tools we get from economics, there's some tools we get from psychology that say we can also end up at war when the people who are deciding ignore the costs, where there's an agency problem within the political unit, within one of the groups. And so they overlook the costs of war. Or maybe they even have a private incentive to use violence because it attains them something that it doesn't attain their group. And we never talk about that in these literatures, very seldom. And it's so fundamental. And then I think we have to think about our preferences, like what do we value and all the non-standard things we value. So there's a whole fourth category of what I call intangible incentives, but they're all the times when the non-material things we value might actually lead us to fight and systematically looking at the evidence on them. Again, something we do too little as, as a profession. And then finally, the mistakes we make or the misperceptions we have. And there I focus more on the things that the mistakes that groups make in strategic interactions, which is a bit different than the way that a lot of a lot of us approach behavioral economics and, and behavioral science, because we're we're not focused on big groups and we're not focused on strategic interactions. We're focused on optimizing behavior and in, in, in small choice making. But these aren't small choices. So that's those are the five. It's like the uncertainty, commitment problems, these agency problems that I call unchecked leaders, intangible incentives, and misperceptions. And that most explanations for wars fall into one of those five buckets. One more that I think, uh, at least in the bargaining context, you know, economists often worry about, which is risk preferences, not in the uncertainty, you know, ambiguity, strategic uncertainty sense, but just, you know, if you have two sides, I mean, the idea behind violence being inefficient is that you've got this pie and each side would rather have, you know, half of it than a 50% chance of getting all of it and all of it when it uh, is a smaller pie after conflict. But if you have groups that are risk-loving enough, then you know maybe the 50% chance at 80 looks better than 50 for sure, especially in a context where you know the pie is getting small enough that it can't really support everybody who wants a, a slice. So yeah. there's a section of the book where, where you address this popular theory of war, which is that when the economic resources available become more scarce that leads to conflict over this you know dwindling pie and you know your argument 
in opposition to that, which I think is persuasive, is that you know, even if the pie is getting smaller, it's still the case that conflict is going to make it even smaller still. And okay. so there should be a bargain available to split up the now smaller pie. But if it's getting small enough to the extent that, you know, it just can't, there's not enough to keep the whole population at subsistence level, then maybe it becomes worth it for each side of the conflict to gamble to get a subsistence level amount of resources as opposed to, you know, starving for sure, which might be what half of that smaller pie gives them. I think you're right. I think there's, in this framework, we're basically saying, well, actually, the problem with not fighting is that there's this problem possibility of an extreme cost, which is death, which has this infinite price. And therefore, so there's, I will say one is, it isn't, ex- listen, there's one way that if you want to ram it in to the framework, you could kind of say that this is kind of like these intangible chen sometimes there's things we value that outweigh the costs of fighting. And I mean, the empirically relevant one throughout history, and I think to explain what's going on in the world right now is our ideological attachment to certain principles, including liberty. So there's certain compromises that are abhorrent. And that's a way of saying price is infinite. Like I would just never, even though I'm too weak to be fully independent and sovereign, and this imperial power is basically offering me semi-sovereignty, I, I would rather fight than accept the compromise that my military power can guarantee me in negotiation because I refuse. And so that's very empirically relevant. The one, what you say is all very similar. It's, the price is really almost infinite of, of dying. I guess I would say like I try to concentrate our intention on the things that I think explain a lot of conflict in history. And, and these kinds of instances where resources are so scarce that it's one or the other and the other group dies. I think in the modern world, those are rare enough that I, I kind of sweep them under the carpet a bit, just mm-hmm. like I sweep some other things under the carpet. I mean, I sweep, I could have sort of said, well, a sixth category of explanation for bargaining failures is transaction costs, that it's really hard to sort of just get a bargain. And if we were talking about why we don't buy rugs, right? Or why we don't buy used cars. Like we could have a whole bunch of transaction costs that help us understand why these routine transactions don't happen. But we're so ridiculously horrible as again, a lot of people are freshly awakened to because we need to be reminded every so often, it seems those transaction costs are really small. And so I, again, I, I sweep a few things like that under the carpet, not because they're not logically consistent with a, a way that this incentive to find a deal breaks down, but rather because I, I want to concentrate our attention on the things that really explain most conflicts. Let me ask you another one that just occurred to me that also might be one that uh, you know changes over time, just like you're saying in the modern world, you know, it's just not that often the case that you know the conflict is at a point where there's literally just not enough food for everyone. But I know at least you know some theorists think that the advantage to attacking versus defending is a big driver of conflict. You know, if you're in yeah. just a, a technological environment where the advantage is very much to the attackers, then you know each side is is going to want to be the one to attack, whether they really want yeah. to attack or not. They're worried about that the other side is going to attack, so they might as well attack first. Whereas and that's you know an unstable environment. Whereas yeah. if you're in a technological environment where the advantage is to the defenders, and my you know I'm not a military expert by any means, but just by reading yeah. the coverage of our the current conflicts in the world, it sounds like you know the consensus is you want three times as many people attacking as defending in order to be successful as an attacker. So 
it sounds like all else equal, you know, it's easier to defend. And that seems like a more stable world because, you know, if both sides want to be the defender, then neither wants to be the attacker. And so maybe conflict doesn't arise in that environment. Absolutely. And I think that actually falls. That's a classic commitment problem. I gave the example, when I introduced them, I, I gave the example of these more dynamic interactions, these dynamic incentives, which is to say a rising power and an inability to commit not to use your future bargaining power to swallow and manipulate your opponent. And therefore, it makes sense to attack now. This more single shot, instantaneous commitment problem can arise when there's a, an offensive advantage, especially when that's an offensive advantage for both sides. It's like that Hollywood movie where you see like there's a gun and it's between the villain and the protagonist. And they both like to walk away maybe and not kill one another, but they do, there's this risk. So they both have to leap for the gun. I mean, it's sort of intuitively, we understand the strategic logic, right? And so that's a classic kind of commitment problem that can lead to war. Again, it's one of the, an example of in the book, I, cover that briefly, I dwell more on the more dynamically preventative war kind of commitment problem, because I think that's the more common. The instances where two countries or two ethnic groups are like staring at the gun in between them, where they have these offensive advantages are there. And when they do, I think they narrow, at the very least, they narrow our options for for finding some kind of solution that doesn't use violence. And, and they make us more susceptible to the misperceptions and the intangible incentives and things of that nature. But again, it comes down to this. What what did I think after reading about all these conflicts and going through the literature, I thought was empirically relevant stuff I really wanted to emphasize because it's so endemic. One other uh, kind of conflict that seems like a common one to me in in the, the modern world, and I don't know how often you think this is a real driver of conflicts, but, you know, maybe you have one side that's well organized, you know, maybe you know, has well-established political structures and, you know, has strong state capacity to control the behavior of their members. And then another group that's less well-organized, you know, maybe has has fewer resources. So their style yeah. of fighting is more insurgent and things like that. Their command structure is more diffuse. And, you know, there it may be that the leaders of both groups want to come to the table and figure out a peaceful solution to their differences. But for the more insurgent group, the leadership doesn't have the capability of controlling their members in that way, especially maybe yeah. when they've, you know, going to the earlier roots of war, the intangibles, you know, maybe they've, in order to generate the insurgency, they've, you know, encouraged some feelings of justice and, you know, group solidarity or whatever within yeah. their group. And it's hard to turn that off. And so, you know, the more organized group feels like, well, you know, the other group's leadership can't control their members, can't, you know, make a deal with them and then outsource that control to them. We're going to have to do it ourselves. You know, we're going to have to be the police force, both of our group and their group. And, you know, at that point, it seems like it's it, once they decide that it's hard to see how a negotiated yeah. piece could happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. You know, the book is like the 101 or maybe even like the 102 version of conflict theory for, and you're getting us to the 201 and the 301. You're seeing all of the, it's it's impressive. You're seeing all the, I think all of the, the very complex and important bargaining situations that are, I didn't get into in as much depth. So, you know, a perfect example of what you're talking about. First of all, I think this problem which you just described is really important. I think it straddles the unchecked leaders or these agency problem explanation and, and commitment problems. And if you wanted to see like maybe the most, one of my favorite books on conflict is there's a political scientist at Northwestern named Wendy Perlman, who's written a book on the Palestinian movement 
and helping us understand Israel-Palestine, which, by the way, this dispute, this confrontation, this competition has been going on for a century, and it's been violent, but it's actually been violent maybe 15 or 20 of those 100 years, and if we want to think of, I mean, it's violent every year to some degree, of course, but in terms of intense violence, that is the exception. So it's actually a good example of two rival groups that are often at a stalemate, doing low-level violence, but mostly just loathing and peace. And she points out that the ebb and flow of violence in a lot of this history is driven by factionalization and splinter groups and the ability to control the group on both sides. And this has been particularly a challenge for some Palestinian leaders because you will have splinter factions in exactly the way you've just described and peace spoilers and things. So there is a whole literature on splinter factions and spoilers. And you can think of this partly as, well, first of all, these spoilers and these splinter groups are maybe, maybe they have some intangible incentive, some ideological incentive that they actually want to use violence. It could be vengeance or it could be something else. And they're not held accountable their group, to their group. So they're, this is a problem where that can disturb the peace. You could look at it as a multiplayer bargaining problem as well, which is something I don't get into as much because, A, we don't we actually don't know a lot about this and we haven't modeled it as much, but it's also, again, that 201 or 301 level. But what it's actually, you know, the, the basic incentive and the thing we've been talking about, this incentive for peace, that does start to break down when you have more than two players. As soon as you have three or four or five, it's not always the case that peace is like the the, the only equilibrium or the optimal equilibrium. All, all, it's, it's not always the case. It's your optimal choice all the time. And then add to that uncertainty, the natural uncertainty of the situation. If you're Israel and you observe this attack from this thing that might be a splinter faction, right? And the leader, the Palestinian leader says to you, no, 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 that was not, we're totally talking at the bargaining table we want. That was not us. And you're not sure. And the same thing can happen on the reverse side. There's this attack from this, you know, something happens with an Israeli army officer does X and, and the Palestinians are outraged and they're like, this is policy. This is completely in there. No, 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 no. This was not intentional. So we have this problem all the time. And it's this complex interaction of at least two or three of these, these problems that we have. And we can understand, I think, a lot of this David and Goliath kind of conflict uh, in that light. I think too, I mean, in a, in a very different way. You, know, you you touch on you know policing in, in the United States at a couple of points during the book, and I think you know there's debates within the United States about whether police misbehavior is that something that's endemic to American policing in the sense that you know that's part of policy, that's what they're trying to do, that's the point of why they're there, or is it like a bad apple problem? And I think um, it's hard for the people who believe it's a bad apple problem and, you know, want to limit it as much as possible. It's hard for them to convince people who are rightly really upset about some of the things that happened that this is just, these are rogue actors that we don't approve of. So there's uncertainty around that on both sides. So that is an important part of it. I mean, I think we do have to ask ourselves in these situations, like when a system is producing these unintended consequences over and over and over again, we probably, it's actually probably a good idea mm -hmm. for most of us to ask, actually, maybe the system was intended to do this, right? And we might answer in the negative and say, no, 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 actually, we think it's a truly unintended consequence. I mean, this is, this is what Michel Foucault sort of taught us about prisons and stuff. He made this very deep point. He said, like, you know, we, we, all of this terrible stuff that happens, you know, maybe we should ask, maybe this isn't like the purpose isn't reform. Maybe the purpose is this kind of punishment. Maybe the purpose is keeping another group down in society. 
And even if you don't support the system for that reason, you should be suspicious of it. So I, anyways, I, I'm very sympathetic to these views mm-hmm. that we have to, we have to sort of look at what systems produce mm-hmm. and then infer maybe some degree of design and motive from their outcomes rather than just writing it off as unintended consequences all the time. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the last half of the book where you're talking about interventions that could, you know, help prevent or resolve conflict and kind of in a symmetry with, uh, you know, the first half of the book starts out with, you know, how terrible war is, but it's a hopeful note of how, you know, rare it is when you really think about it. The second half of the book, you're in the hopeful phase, like here's how we're going to solve these uh, problems that do arise. Yeah. And I think the main thing you're trying to kind of knock down is there's no magic bullet. You know, there's no just uh, one neat trick that will just end war among humans. Is that fair to say is like, you know, how you're kind of starting out that section? The simple thing I think would have been to do what I also do, but no more, which is to say, listen, actually, if you want to solve conflict or if you want to reduce conflict, then you have to actually, the, you know, the cure has to fit the diet. You have to have a diagnosis, which is amazing. We often don't. Like We do so much policy policing this and, or just crime production, violence reduction in U.S. cities is such a great example of where we leap to solutions. We have this thing called like, all this solutionism where we actually, and then we don't really diagnose what the actual source of the violence. So this worked in Philly. Let's apply it here. And you're like, no, 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 that maybe our violence is different in the city. Like, actually, let's diagnose it. And so let's figure out what the source of breakdown is between actors in our society. And then rather than using like this off-the-shelf package, international peacekeeping and is exactly the same thing. It's like all this off-the-shelf package for conflicts that have different sources. So I, I could have sort of left it at that and mapped all of the things we do that are successful to addressing these, these issues of, of breakdown and the five factors. But then my one is then my sort of inner, this is where my like, like day job is, is to actually design solutions and test them in a much more micro and rigorous way. And, and recognizing this thing that actually a lot of the stuff we do is kind of mediocre and it's mediocre because it's a really hard problem. It's actually really hard to diagnose and then cures are hard to design. And so I decided to like, well, I'm going to go a bit further and, and, give people that more difficult message in the second half, maybe because, you know, I think we all know most people don't get to the second half of any book. (laughs) So if they do, I've got this select group that is ready for maybe something a little bit more sophisticated and measured than, than some of the messages in the the first half. So speaking of being midway through a a book, you write at one point and you're describing someone else here, but you say anyone who works on a big social problem, knows this feeling, it comes midway through a big project, maybe even a career, a sense that you're wasting energy and it's all for nothing. So, you know, you surely work on a big social problem. So I imagine, you know, that you're describing someone else in that passage, that you've felt this at some point in your career, maybe even while working on this book. And so I wanted to ask you if you have come to those moments. I mean, I've come to those moments as maybe most of us have in my career and certainly a project all the time. You know, I didn't come. I didn't come to that moment in this book where halfway through I'm like, "Why am I writing this?" <laughs> because you know, for a point I try to make at the end, because then when I get to the last chapter, I'm like, "Well, anyone who made it this far, they're really ready to like actually think hard about this." And I'm, I just don't want to end on like some soppy kind of note of like, "Oh, the world's going to be better." Like I said, let's actually get down to business and let's say, how do you actually make good policy? One of the courses I teach at the Harris Public Policy is like it's like the social science of policymaking, and what we read is all this economics and sociology and political science and everything on, on people have actually studied what, when bad policy happens in the world and why. 
And one of the biggest mistakes we make as human beings in all facets of life, I think, and like another behavioral bias we don't pay much attention to, is we really fail to distinguish complex from easy problems. <clears throat> there are easy problems in the world, like getting people measles vaccines. And there are complicated problems in the world, like industrializing a country, addressing violence, or solving poverty, or all these things are complex, really wicked problems. And we make mistakes when we think wicked problems are simple problems, which we do all the time. And we have oversimplistic solutions. We think, oh, I can just take this off the shelf package from Philly that the police are doing there. It must work in my city. I think you reach those moments of crisis and despair when you're addressing these complex problems because they're so hard and you're not quite sure. And the things you've been trying aren't working. The book, writing the book wasn't a complex problem. It was a simple problem because there's this gift from like eight decades of social scientists in every discipline where like, screaming at the world, pay attention to this and just bringing it together was a, you know, a fun and sometimes tedious exercise, just like vaccinating the world for measles is, is a hard and tedious exercise, but it's not hard. So that's why I didn't reach that point in the book. Cause at the end of the day, I knew what the problem was people aren't reading this and what the solution was change the conversation, make it engaging, make it understandable. And now I get to turn my way back to the complex problems and that familiar feeling of, of despair all the time. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the the interventions that you're proposing in the last half of the book, you know, I think it seems like most of the time the goal, like the way you measure success in those interventions is just, you know, reduction in violence. But, you know, as you talked about, and when we were talking about intangible incentives, and this comes up in this part of the book too, sometimes those solutions work against, you know, what many people might think is is fair or just, or, you know, a better long-term solution. So, you know, trying to reduce conflict between two warring gangs, for instance, you know, an intervention might be able to broker a, a peace between those gangs, but it will perpetuate the existence of those gangs. And maybe those gangs will continue to immiserate the people and the areas that they control. So there's kind of a trade-off between a near-term stable solution that brings about peace and, you know, a, a solution that that uh, people might think is is more just or, or more fair how should we yeah. be thinking about you know trading off stability against justice i mean for me personally this was maybe one of the deeper insights i drew from like and i began to understand as i wrote the book so let's think about an autocracy let's think about i don't know um, let's think about russia for example you have a powerful elite group and then you have a citizenry who are robbed of many political rights, right? And it's peaceful. It doesn't make sense to revolt violently, particularly because one side is extremely strong and would probably very effectively repress it and has, but it doesn't happen. And except, you know, on rare occasion, right? And even then, often a lot of these revolutions are not violent. So, so a lot of politics in the world follows this. That's the story of most of human history. Most of human history is a, the large majority of a group is oppressed and subjugated by a minority of that group. And it's relatively peaceful. And, and our revolutions in history are, are, are rare. So first of all, that's the sad state of the world. And so this is an example where these incentives for peace can lead to persistent injustice. And so that means that peace can't always be, if, we're, if you're thinking as like an intervener, peace isn't necessarily your only goal. In fact, if you're but it does shape how you think. Like if you want to sort of think about democracy promotion or the promotion of human rights or equality in the world, then you have to think about how do I raise the bargaining power of one group 
but perhaps not destabilize the situation so that one side or the other has an incentive to use violence. Like, how do we have revolutions without revolt? And so that's that's how I think about it. We have to maybe be then trying to maximize two things with our interventions or with our approach to international policy. And there's kind of a related question of incrementalism versus what you might call disruptionism. It's wholesale, systematic, transformative change. And I think you're an advocate of incrementalism in the book. I think it's fair to say that here at Probable Causation, we're also incrementalists. And I think there's a lot of support for incrementalism in American political and, and intellectual thought. Like I think of President Obama, for instance, as a incrementalist par excellence, Tyler Cowen and Alex Tabrak's blog, Marginal Revolution, very influential and subtitled Small Steps uh, Towards a Better World. Matt Iglesias's uh, you know, new blog is called Slow Boring, which is that title is taken from a quote, which is the slow boring of hard boards, which I think indicates a, a passion for, for incrementalism. Mm-hmm. But it also has its distractors. You know, there are some people who feel that there are just really fundamental problems in our society that run so deep that we just need massive transformational change. And they want to kind of, to say, blow it all up and start over might be too violence hounding. But they definitely don't like the idea that we're going to have to take, you know, small local steps. They want, you know, to try to find a new global max. So, and you've, you know, looked at a lot of, societies outside of the U.S., obviously, and some that are much would uh, need to take a lot of small steps in order to, to become as functional as the U.S. But why do you favor incrementalism? And uh, you know, for the people who are frustrated with it, how can we persuade them that um, you know they should they should be incre- incrementalists? Yeah, and you know, I am an incrementalist in my daily life. I mean, I even I'm writing this big book on all these big theories and the history and and my day. You know, I'm I'm like a running randomized control trials of violence programs on the streets of different cities and, and things of this nature. And then I have to ask myself the same question, like, okay, what, what thoughts do I have on how our government should act in the world or how governments should act in the world? And how do we do something on the scale of building peace in a country that's torn by war and an invasion? And I have been in those, you know, I've sat at some of those tables and when I worked in Liberia and, and things of this nature. And the answer I slowly have this the answer has been slow coming and i'm probably it's going to evolve over time i think i think we can i think we can take big steps and we can and you have to right when there's a war and when russia invades the ukraine policymakers have to make a choice and then we as voting public or as advisors whatever role we play have to judge that or support that or not i think you can take an incremental and marginalist mindset to these huge actions let me give an example of a peacekeeping force and a peace, which is to say, we think here's a civil war in, in say, sub-Saharan Africa. We're going to advocate sending a 30,000 troop peacekeeping force there. Like that's not, doesn't sound very incremental. And Bill Easterly, who's a close friend of mine and who's a critic of a lot of aid and a big advocate of incrementalism is sort of saying, well, how can you, if you're an incrementalist, Chris, how do you in this book advocate for peacekeeping? Because that's not incremental. The way I think about it is that, well, actually, peacekeeping is kind of incremental. First of all, we have to think about what's the increment by which you provide national security. And the fact is, is that in the United States, we have whatever, X police officers per capita. I think it's, let's say it's per 100,000 people. Let's say it's like 20 or sorry, let's say it's 220. And an incremental change in that would be 
one more per 100,000. And that's kind of what we're doing with these peacekeeping operations. We're saying we need a little bit more armed security, impartial, professionalized security in this country. And so we actually need to raise it on a, on a margin that can actually make a difference. But we're not going to do it so boldly, right? So now we're making the appropriate increment for the problem at hand. But then we actually have to take this sort of piecemeal engineering mindset to it and say, now let's also do this in a very cautious manner. We're not going to believe that this is the magic solution. We're going to actually deploy these in such a way that we're going to try to observe when it's working, when it's not. And we're going to have these groups, these forces operate in different ways in different countries and and in different countries and in different places within the country to actually try to understand where we can be more or less effective. And so constantly be thinking on the margin of how we can be more or less effective and whether or not this big incremental choice we've made was the right one or not. And some military generals and policymakers and presidents and things do approach problems that way. And many don't. We sort of say, this is the magic solution. This is the solution. Like we would send them, deploy peacekeepers everywhere. Here's our national humanitarian peacebuilding package that every country is going to get. And they approach that same problem without that skeptical and marginalist kind of mindset. And so that's how I think about it. Well, final question for you before I let you go. As uh, listeners are now aware, having heard this conversation, your, your work touches on many different disciplines and draws from still more. If you could choose one field and point it towards a question whose answer would help you in your work, what field and what question would you choose? You know, I think I'd say uh, there's a subfield that crosses many of our disciplines, and it's sort of the people like me who go out and find the natural experiments and find the quasi-experiments or run experiments. So this is probably your audience in, in many ways, too. And the thing that we collectively have failed to do for 30 years of actually people running studies, empirical studies of violence and conflict is take the theory seriously and actually try to test it. So so what happens is you have something like, I'll bet you 60% of empirical papers that have been written on the subject of violence, try to find an exogenous economic shock and use that to assess the effect of poverty or income shocks or something on violence. When we have our basic theoretical apparatus says, shrink the pie, enlarge the pie, you still don't have an incentive to fight. And we just keep reconfirming that there's a small, sometimes statistically significant effect of income shocks on violence uh, because maybe because it, it actually affects the persistence of violence, maybe because you shock things enough, it's hard to, you have to find another bargain, but it doesn't actually address our fundamental problem of how you, why conflict comes about or why it stops. And what a misallocation of energy and resources. So when you earlier said, well, we don't really have that much evidence that reducing transaction costs, improve bargaining in these real life scenarios. We don't have much evidence that commitment problems or uncertainty or these intangible preference, these non-standard preferences and tangible incentives drive conflict. And we don't have much evidence that say, trying to change people's preferences or trying to reduce uncertainty, mediating conflicts, doing things that mediators do on a day-to-day basis. We don't actually have much evidence that that works. And I'm like, yes, this is the problem because we're not going out and taking the theory seriously and saying, let's look at mediators. Let's figure out what they actually do. Let's pull it apart. And let's actually go to real conflicts in maybe at the village level, maybe at the gang level, maybe at somewhere. And let's actually try to really find out what's effective. And we can test our theories at the same time that we're finding solutions that make this a better planet. And that's still rare. 
And so I would love to, to just see us all take these ideas more seriously, bring the empirical science to bear, refine this, but I think probably have a lot better solutions to this terrible problem. Great. Well, in there, the book is Why We Fight. It's out now. So go read it and tell your friends about it. Chris, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. You can find links to all the research we discuss on the show on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. We're so grateful for your support. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.